hey what's up everybody uh dr ray here ray pastor and uh yeah today what i want to do is i'm going to go through and read just some basic um things that have been uh happening in id you know people asking questions you know that i see on various forums today i'm going to take a look at the instructional design reddit uh, there's always good questions on there. It's always the same stuff, too, for the most part. There was a couple interesting ones that I wanted to address. So basically what I'm going to do is I am going to go through and answer some questions. I'm going to read the questions that people posted on there. Remember, these were just posted randomly on Reddit for anyone to respond to. So I don't really type on Reddit ever. I, I like to read it. Um, if you ever do see me writing on Reddit, my usernames are RayPastorPhD, which I use when I want people to really know it's me, and my other one is JujitsuPhD, which I use, which is my gamer tag that I use for everything. So you might see me post there sometimes, but uh, always interesting responses on there. Um, it's a really interesting forum because there are a bunch of people who are like graphic designers on there versus like instructional designers all in the same place. So it's really weird. All right, so let's get to some of the questions and some of the answers. Let me just, oh yeah, I should double check that my, uh, everything is actually working today too. Oh yeah, it's all working good. <laughs> all right, okay, so let's see. So first thing, first question that I see, person says, five years in, bored to death, thoughts. Title says it all, five years in ID, outside consulting, bored. Been promoted to senior, they're talking about me becoming manager, but I'm still bored. Been doing the same thing over and over again. I thought working with challenging clients was exciting at first, at first so I got pretty good at it, but now I feel I shouldn't wrestle the octopus just because I can. I'm not likely changing careers, but what has your approach been to handling mind-numbing aspects of the job? Okay, so let's address that question. So first of all, every single job that you have ever, it, you know, your own business to the most exciting thing in the world, the most coolest job. If I had to pick like the coolest job in the world, it would be like being a music, like a rock and roll musician would be the coolest job in the world. But like there are boring and tedious aspects to that. Every single, so first of all, every job has tedious, boring, everything you do in life has tedious, boring aspects. The most fun game in the world. Like I play League of Legends. The intro of the game where I'm choosing the people and then like the first five minutes of the game are usually just really boring. Like that's just, that's life. So there's always gonna be that. So that's my first thought is, a, yes, every job, but I get what the person's saying. They're just overall not energized. And usually when I find that's happening with someone, it's generally because they're just not being challenged. They've gotten into the routine and I, I'm the same way that my current job is the longest one I've ever held because I get bored really quick. I get bored and I have to go on to the next thing. So I totally get what they're saying. Um, basically what they're saying is they're bored and they need to be challenged. So. What is my advice to the person that's telling me, look, I'm an ID, I kind of like the work, but I'm just really bored doing what I'm currently doing. I just can't continue to do it. My advice is that that person needs to switch jobs. I don't think they need to switch careers. I think they need to get in a different culture, a different company. Um, switching from company to company, each company has a very different culture from one another. It's a completely different environment, different people, um, different tasks different things that you're doing. Um, 
And I think that that person needs to make a big switch. You know, I would ask them, are they working in an office? Are they working from home? Maybe one of whatever they are doing, maybe they need to switch that role and see if that helps them out a lot. Um, but I would say they need a, a change. They need a change like a new company and a different culture. And since they have a job, be very picky, look around and find something that actually is going to excite them. You know, what, what is going to excite them? What kind of company, what kind of culture, what kind of products do they want to develop that's going to make them happy? Maybe they're sick of just developing e-learning and they want to do instructor-led courses or something like that. Maybe they want to get more into the training side of things. Um, or maybe they are, that's where they are and they want to get more into e-learning. But I think they need to really pick that out and uh, figure it out and get there. All right. Okay. Let's look at some more questions. Oh yeah, this question. So curriculum designers. Um, and of course it's another teacher get looking into getting an ID, uh, which is like pretty much every question on here. That's the same thing, which is why I say that. Um, but basically what they're asking about is I'm applying to some jobs that say curriculum designer, some say PD specialist, some say instructional designer. What is the difference between these jobs or these titles? The answer to this question is there is no difference. And there are tons of differences. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. So um, there's no difference in that if I were to ask 10 people what these job titles mean, they would all have different responses. All the jobs, all these titles could mean the absolutely exact same thing. And, but person A might have a different definition than person B. So it's not a good, a good question isn't what is the difference between these, because there is no difference. There, these words are all used interchangeably. Most HR people or people putting together these positions have no idea what any of them really mean. They come up with a snazzy title and that's it. It's like, you know, instructional designers are instructional technologists, educational technologists, uh, learning designers, learning experience designers, uh, learning scientists, learning engineers, you know, whatever the hot word of the day is, is what we want to be called. Um, so don't read too much into the job title. Look for basic keywords that say it's something to do with instructional design. Then read the actual job description and see, here's what I'm actually going to be doing. Because what someone calls a curriculum developer could be a person who is an instructional designer, could be a person developing e-learning, could be a person like developing images and stuff, could be a person teaching classes. I have no idea from that title what that person's gonna be doing. It could be all, all of the above of what an instructional designer would do or just one component of it. So really make sure that you go in and just read the description because those titles are meaningless, really just meaningless. They really don't mean anything, so be aware of that. All right, so that's that's another question. Oh wow, someone's asking about a boot camp cost. How much is the boot camp cost? Well, I don't so my opinion on like these uh, uh like seminars, boot camps, academies that you can join um I guess if it's free, I would tell you 100% go for it and see what you can get out of it. But like they don't help your resume at all. So I'm not quite sure how they, why you would pay for them because you can get, 
first of all, so much information is so is free. I mean, you can get so much from YouTube, so much from like joining groups like LinkedIn, various groups on Facebook and LinkedIn, tons of groups that you can get uh, learn from. Um, you can there's so much stuff on YouTube about instructional design if you really want to learn stuff yourself. If you're looking for something for your resume, I would tell you to go get an actual recognized certificate or degree that companies will actually recognize. Um, if you're just looking for some self-learning, I I really don't think that, um, I wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> no way would I pay for it. Um, unless I needed like some one-on-one -on -one tutoring with something or some help, you know, resume advice could be worth paying for that. Um, but general like instructional design stuff or like learning to use like Captivate, Articulate. Do you know how many YouTube videos there are on Articulate and Captivate out there that I can learn every single thing for free by myself? If I want to take a class, I'm taking something that's recognized that will actually look good on my resume. So that's that. And someone say good morning. Good morning to you. Um, but that's that's my thought on like those academies and stuff that people charge for. I I totally don't think paying for them is worth it. Unless it helps your resume, then it's worth it, but I don't know. Uh, someone's thinking about a master's in UX design. Yeah, um, I, I think that if that's a job you wanna go into or a career path you're looking at, um, I think that it it's not, it's not bad. Oh yeah, there's tons of crossover with ID. Um, absolutely there is. Um, really just depends what you wanna do and what your goals are and what companies you're looking for and i always tell people with the masters like you know people ask me like should is the master's degree worth it should i get the masters and i tell them um so for uh, you know i just did a video last week about or two weeks ago about five reasons to get a master's but a you get more pay with the master's degree and man when 2008 happened and the economy tanked and you had to go for federal jobs because they were the only ones hiring they you had to have a master's degree so it's it is, and considering the cost, like my master's degree at my university is like nine thousand, nine to $10,000. <laughs> like the return on investment is like ridiculous <laughs> that, you know, you have that paid back when you look at the, the cost increase from salary within three to four years already, it's, it's paid back to you. So totally worth it. But yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of continuing education. I really wish that I, uh, personally could go and like get more masters or degrees and stuff like that um, for me it's a cost issue and the really just a time issue i totally just don't have time to do it but i would love to go back to school and continue to get more degrees um i it's just something that's challenging to me so i'm at uncw but i would go i mean anywhere that i would love to just go back and get some different things but i just i don't have the time to do it and I can't do something and not get paid, and it's just not worth it for me right now at this point in my career, but I would love to do it. I mean, I would go for like different, there's all kinds, there's probably like, I could name like 10 degrees that I would like to go back and get, <laughs> which is kind of funny from, you know, uh, things like UX design, things like I would probably go back for like a basic engineering degree, maybe computer science, maybe even like things like law, and just different things that I could see apply to what I'm trying to do and what I'm doing. Um, someone asked about question about salary expectations. So the interesting thing, um, the interesting thing about salary expectations at um, in instructional design is it, it really depends where you are in your career. You know, like an entry level ID in corporate is probably gonna make like in the 60s, maybe 70s. 
Um, but then further along in your career, you're going to be making well into six figures. So it, it really depends where you are. And a lot of that depends on the company you're applying to and location you're applying to. Because, you know, Midwest is going to pay a lot different than Silicon Valley. Um, so that's a big, uh, big thing. And uh, the other thing to think about with that is, are you applying to K-12, higher ed, government? Like, what industry are you applying in? Like if you're applying in like government contracting or like finance industry for an instructional designer, you're probably or like big tech, you're gonna get more money than like applying to like a nonprofit. So those are things to think about. Um, and then, um, you know, someone on here is asking about you know the schools and how costs or the costs are an issue. Money's an issue when going to school. And yeah, absolutely. Um, my recommendation for people looking for a master's degree in anything is to first start at the state universities in the state you look at, you live in, and see how much they cost for in-state tuition because that's that's honestly usually the best bang for your buck, hands down, um, because they usually are pretty inexpensive and the degrees are generally going to be just as good. You just have to obviously you have to research a program and all that stuff, but assuming that it's good, that's your best bet and in fact a lot of like even in in our field instructional technology instructional design a lot of the best programs are from state schools so that's usually not an issue in our field so i mean that's always my first you know and like my school for in-state students is like nine thousand dollars like nine some thousand nine and change to get a master's degree if you go if you're in state in in my at my university and that's just like crazy to me to think that that's like super ch how cheap that is think about this a price of a car average price of a car i just read this over the weekend average price of a new vehicle is thirty six thousand dollars you can get a master's degree for less than one third of that that'll carry over for your whole life and increase your salary um average of 3k per year so that's just when i think about like the roi the return on investment of that it's just crazy all right, let's go through a couple more of these questions. Let's see. Well, this is an interesting one. Um, inclusion advice for case activity writing while maintaining good plain English principles. So they're trying to, they're, they're writing to people who perhaps have ESL, like English as a second language, and they're figuring out how do you, how do you write proper, I guess, proper English while writing to people that might not understand that kind of, might not have English as their first language, so might, there was going to be some barriers to the language. So that's an interesting um, dilemma, and I've actually run into this several times when de designing instructional design projects where I was designing projects that were going to be towards people who maybe were English as a second language learners, English wasn't their native language, or I was even talking to like technical people versus very non-technical people. So we're very well educated to very not educated. And how do you handle those kind of issues? So the first thing that you have to do is you have to, that's part of instructional design, part of your needs analysis, where you analyze who are your learners and what do I need to do for your learners? And it may be the case that if you're developing for multiple groups, you may need to develop multiple, multiple um, different ways that you talk to each of them. And let me just give you an example. I was 
asked to do a project for a very large firm, um, actually one of the big tech firms. And they were going to present this project to 30 companies. It was a piece of training that we were going to use for 30 companies. And basically what I said is, you know, I can't develop one piece of training that's going to apply to 30 countries because each of these countries has different culture, different types of language. And yes, they all spoke English. So that's basically what this person's asking is like these people all speak English. But like even think of like the difference between like America and like England. Like we don't we all speak English is our main language, but like their British English is much different than American version of English. Like they call things differently. You know, they call an apartment a flat. And if I said flat, would if I use that term in designing something for people in Ohio, would they understand it? They probably will because they've heard it before, but there probably is some that doesn't. And it, it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, Whereas when I'm designing it for England and I said apartment, like, would they understand that? I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't really know much about English culture. So I don't know if they get that or not. But like, you, you've got to be very careful when addressing different types of audiences, how you talk to them. Um, and that's why it's so important to take the learners into consideration. Um, and I don't think it's about speaking proper English or not. Like the person asked here, I don't really understand what they were asking there. I, I, I think, I don't think they... I think they were more or less asking how do you how do you address people who aren't necessarily pro highly proficient in English, and what you do is you you don't write at a doctoral level to them and, but the thing is you don't write to a doctoral level to anyone, anyone. I can't I can't stand when I read a research paper and it's written it takes a PhD to understand what they're talking about. I like when I can read a research paper and it's as simple as reading a Harry Potter book, so. You know, how you talk to people, I always say low level, you know, elementary, middle school level of reading and fun um, is how you address and how you talk and how you speak to people so that it does not take a PhD to understand. Now, obviously, if there's certain terminology that someone needs to use or something like that, you have to define all of that up front to make sure that they understand all of that. But that's how you address it. You work with your learners and find out what is their culture and make sure you're not like, putting someone in a red shirt in your e-learning and red the color red offends the people in their culture don't wear red shirts i don't know if that's real or not but that's what you have to do you have to really take those learners into consideration which is why you work with them which is why a needs analysis is so important and it just boggles my mind in rapid design we try to skip the needs analysis so quick um, and not do it and you know when i'm doing consulting projects a lot i have to I don't even get to do a needs analysis. Our, my needs analysis is like a 30 to 60 minute phone call and I'm writing a statement of work for a company. So it, I don't like it, but sometimes that is what we have to do. All right, let's see. Let's find some other stuff. Oh, here is it. Here is a question. Is it worth pursuing a professional certificate course for UX design. So yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you just asked this, someone just asked this question, is it worth pursuing a master's in it? Absolutely. I think if it adds, I think I think continuing your education and, and building your resume in the areas of education and experience um, and research and conferences and everywhere that you can continue to expand it is speaks volumes about the person, shows that you're willing to continue stuff. Um, and 
makes you really look good on paper. Um, I think it does help someone stand out when I see that they're continuously going for stuff, um, continuously overachieving and, and making sure that they're up to date with what's happening. So I, I, I think it I think it looks good. Is it worth the money? I don't know. It depends how much it costs. That's a different question. Um, but is it nice to have? Is it is it good? Does it can it help you get a job? Sure, it can. Oh, equipment advice for in-home voiceover recording setup. This is actually a really good question. I have a budget of $5,000 and need to set up a recording studio for simple VO work for instructional design projects. Wow. So that's a good question. So first of all, um, I would say that $5,000 should be enough for you to buy really high-end stuff. I don't think you need need that amount of money to buy good stuff, but let's talk about some of the basic stuff that you have. Now, there's different levels, and this will be my last question, I think. How long have I been talking for? Oh, uh, yeah, 20 minutes. Um, so if, if I was setting up a recording studio, and I've talked about this before in other videos, like what do you need? So there's like a difference. There's like a low-end setup and a high-end setup. So the first thing that hopefully is free at your house is the space. Because you need a space that's like, ideally you have a room with no windows in it, but like most spaces in a house have a window unless you're working in a closet. So that makes it a little tough because you have to find a place that's quiet. For example, there's no air conditioning running in it, or at least you can shut your air off. Um, there's not going to be cars driving by. Other distractors in the room. And also the smaller the space is usually a little better because it's much easier to block out outside noises. Um, next thing you need is a microphone, which I use a, a Yeti X microphone. Um, and I think a Blue Yeti is, is good. I think if I'm doing, I think Blue Yeti mics are good for semi-professional work. Um, maybe even could qualify enough for professional work. But if I were, if I were recording professionally, making a significant amount of money, trying to do this as a skill, as a narrator, I would probably buy a much better, higher quality microphone. Um, that had like voice, you know, the shocks on it and stuff like that that would block things. Um, you also need, so for a low-end setup, you don't need an interface, but for a high-end setup, you definitely need a good interface. And if you're not familiar with what an interface is, um, I don't really like the term interface, but basically it's a, it's a box that controls, it's kind of the in-between your microphone or whatever you're doing, like if you're playing music or whatever, and your computer and it controls all of the these little things that can happen in between there so you can change like tones pitches and do all kinds of stuff um, on the interface and i would probably get an external interface you can there are interfaces that you can use on your computer as well um, you can install different types of interface like digital interfaces um, but i would probably have an interface which I don't have current. I actually do have one. I just don't use it. Um, so I don't use an interface, but I don't do professional narration either. Um, and then I'd probably use like, you know, Adobe Audition or whatever like that to edit my my stuff. So, you know, that's, that's a basic setup. I, you know, in your room, you probably want soundproof panels. 
Um, you don't need a little soundproof thing around your mic. I've done a bunch of different tests with that and it, it does absolutely nothing. Um, so you don't need a little panel thing around your mic. You might need panel things on your walls, which could help a lot if you're talking about professional studio quality. Um, but that's your basic setup. You know, you obviously you need a good computer that the fan's not gonna really come on or your mic's not gonna pick up the fan and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, if someone's looking for an audio setup for voiceover, instructional design, e-learning work, that's my basic setup. I really think you can get away with $1,000 and get a pretty good, pretty good setup there, pretty good interface, you know, pretty good mic and set up a room. Um, I think you do a pretty good job, especially for e-learning quality stuff. Most of the e-learning, I've seen so much e-learning that some of it's really good with just quality of audio that I would never accept, but like clients and end users don't really know the difference and think that it's fine. So I, I don't think that we expect the same level of quality that like a recording artist is in e-learning, which is really interesting that we don't, but we just don't. So I think that I've seen people get away with some pretty bad, bad stuff um, in ID as far as voice recording. So when, when I've done professional voice recording <clears throat> um, in corporate, what we used to do is we would put people in a, a soundproof, like a sound booth a recording studio and have them record with all the best equipment that there is. But for a home setup, I really think you can get away with pretty cheap, at the very least like $100 mic and a computer and you could probably do a lot with that. Um, add in add in an interface, add in some wall panels and I think that you're uh, you know a piece of software like Adobe Audition that you could really edit. You, you could use Audacity as well for that. Um, you've got to have some kind of interface in there to play with your voice and everything and to make sure that it's recording correctly. But uh, yeah, those would, that would be my recommendation for a home studio. So um, yeah, that would be it. So yeah, those are my, uh, th those are the enough questions today, I think. It's like, you know, six questions or something like that. I, I haven't went back and counted, but I think that that would, those are, that's enough for today. But uh, yeah, I want to try to do this more where I come in and do Q and A's for stuff. Um, I want to do it for esports as well and instructional design and and really just talk about different issues, different things happening in the field and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed. And if you ever have any questions, you can always ask on when I'm live or you can just even ask on the video and I can address it the next time or just respond in the video, like in the chat. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's it. So uh, later.